Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Song Facts Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know what? It is all in the name because I think that we can all agree that to a certain extent, we all want to be better. And sometimes we all just need a little bit of help because without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. And the good news is that therapy works. I can vouch. I've said it before. I've leaned on it several times throughout my life for varying different things. I was having a mother that was passing away from cancer for a few years that really had an effect on me more recently, and I definitely utilized therapy for things like that. As a child, I had a sleep disorder, and I went in and got myself a little bit sorted out through therapy for that. There's just so many different things that are going on that we can use a professional's advice on. But what is therapy exactly? Well, it is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated and you'd like some tools to help, or you're just feeling insecure or stressed. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of these normal human struggles and to just start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. Trust me, you do. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Much more affordable than in-person therapy, you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer for Song Facts podcast listeners, you can get 10% off, yes, that is 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's betterhelp.com slash songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this show. Song Facts, get your song facts right Hello and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. This is Carl Weiser, Managing Editor at Song Facts, guest hosting today for Corey O'Flanagan. Today on the show, we have the very talented and accomplished songwriter, Alex Forbes. I heard about Alex from Jan Close, K-L-O-S-E. He's a wonderful singer I follow, and he's got a single out right now called Sugar My that I just can't get out of my head. Sugar My, so good. It's one of those songs that you kind of peel back the layers and you love it even more. Well, anyway, it turns out Alex co-wrote that song, and she's also written a bunch of other songs that I really like, including Don't Rush Me by Taylor Dane, and also a fantastic freestyle jam called Two Turned On. She even made Joey Lawrence a pop star, working on his hit song, Nothing My Love Can't Fix. Alex is still writing wonderful songs and also runs creativesongwriter.com, where she offers song critiques and coaches songwriting, which is something we are going to talk about today. Sugar my lullaby, sugar my dreams.
Alex, very happy to have you on the Song Facts podcast today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Carl. I'm, I'm excited to do this. So, Alex, we got to get this out of the way. Are you, in <laughs> fact, a scion of the Forbes empire? No. <laughs> N-O. <laughs> no. Um, Malcolm was my uncle. So, uh, um, but uh, as my, my cousin always liked to say, um, same family, different bank account. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess the show Secession is on my mind because it won all those Emmys, but I'm glad you don't have any of that drama. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Some have said there is a similarity there. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. So let's go back to the 80s to give kind of a beginning of your career. When you wrote this song called Two Turned On... which is this incredible freestyle song, really high energy. Uh, please talk about that. Okay. Um, well, up until that point, um, I had been writing a lot of folky folk rock songs, which is really where I came from. I came from a Beatles, Joni Mitchell, uh, Allman Brothers, uh, you know, place in my writing, Jimi Hendrix, whatever, you know, Neil Young, those were my idols growing up. And um when I decided I wanted to make a living doing this, I, I could not get arrested. My my voice was, you know, not uh, not that great. And um, but I was started listening to things like Madonna and Chaka Khan. I bought that single of "Ain't Nobody" by Chaka Khan, and I just went crazy for that song. I love that song so much. And I used to watch it spinning on the turntable and just go, why can't I write a song like that? And so but those songs, uh, the club songs started to infuse my my writing. And um, I one day this idea came to me um, walking down the street on 19th Street and Fifth Avenue. I was a graphic artist assistant at that point. And and this idea came to me and I called it into a phone machine. Um, you know, I called it into my own phone machine on mm -hmm. the corner there of of 19th and 5th. And I was obsessed with this idea. And I was going, I'm too turned on, I can't turn back. And and it just came to me. And I went home that night. Um, I showed the lyric to my friend, uh, Shelly Pikin. And I said, this is the first line. It goes, love is a cliff and I'm pushing you over it. And she was like, ah, that's a little uh -huh. violent. <laughs> but I thought, oh, I like it. And I stuck to it and I went home. And I demoed it that night and I couldn't sleep. Something was different about that song compared to all my little folk rock type songs and um, stayed up all night and demoed it. And and when I brought it into my songwriting workshop, which I had brought in, you know, dozens of songs before, everybody went, everybody in the whole room said, that one's a hit. And mm -hmm. nobody said, nah, 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 nah. You know, the way they pick at you at a, in a workshop. And nobody picked on it. Everybody said, that one's a hit. And I felt it in my heart. So I demoed it. And it wasn't quite right. And I demoed it again. I spent two months rent on that demo. <laughs> and um, I sang it myself. And the second producer I showed it to uh, recorded it. And, and it became a hit. And I was able to quit my graphic art job. 
and uh, do this full time. And I haven't looked back. So I have never been to one of these songwriting workshops. Are they particularly harsh? Um, no, but I think it's uh, uh, yes and no. It depends what you bring in. I mean, I think that we deserve to have our uh, harshness if we're not writing up to par. It's like the same thing that happens when you walk into a meeting with a professional. I mean, they will rip you a new one if if your song is is not. I remember being being torn to pieces about heart apart start. You know that you know that the typical rhymes are just not interesting anymore. And how can you? bring something to the table that's that's new and fresh and and for me that was necessary i mean i think we have to take the criticism if we're going to be a professional ice skater we have a coach if we're going to be a a professional athlete or anything you know or a, any a professional banker i mean <laughs> there's somebody there who has to mentor you and that's what i think is valuable about the process did you ever meet alicia who is the artist sure. who recorded that song Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Alicia, you know, I went to, um, I heard her on the radio. She had a song called All Night Passion, and that's why I brought it to that producer. I had heard her song All Night Passion, and I thought, well, she could sing my song. She's brand new. I also, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wanted to get it to Madonna originally. I mm -hmm. thought it was Madonna, and I called up Sire Records, and someone answered the phone, and I said, I want to submit this song to uh, Madonna, can I bring it by? And they were like, no, you have to mail it. And I was like, mail it? Screw you. And I didn't mail it. And I'd probably be a millionaire right now if I hadn't mailed it. <laughs> but, um, you know, Alicia's producer was actually more open to a uh, meeting with me. And, 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 and Alicia's parents were working with her at that point and and they were great folks and and they and I went to her gigs and <laughs> I'm still sort of in touch with her on on uh, Facebook. <laughs> so. Huh. so dance music at the time was kind of interesting because you had super super famous people like Madonna but then most of this other stuff were these people who you would never be able to pick out of a crowd. I I met Alicia and I remember thinking she was very sweet. She was a great singer and she was totally ordinary me. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but you just wouldn't pick her out as like the star. Well, you know, th that's part of what happened with MTV. And I think that's problematic because because, uh, you know, people who were all flashy and doing all the dance steps and stuff like that, you know, were welcomed on MTV and people who were were more just a great singer, you know. There were there's been famous cases where where um, Martha Wash. I had a song cut by Martha Wash, and and they replaced her in the video. Um, and yeah. you know, famously, um, I think it was everybody dance now or one of those big hits. Yeah, she had it was gonna a, make you, gonna make you sweat. Where she did make the you everybody sweat. dance right. and, now. And and she is just a brilliant singer, and you know, one of my super favorites of all time. And RCA, I believe it was, had the nerve to replace her in the video because she didn't look the part. Well, who cares? You know, I mean, some people are just great singers and, and don't do all the steps and don't, you know, weigh 20 pounds and whatever. It's it's there's the prejudice in this world. And and that's one of the things that that I think music should be able to overcome is our 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 prejudices. And it should be able to cut through that. But still, there are. There are remnants of that of that uh, you know, discrimination going on.
Yeah, that was an interesting time with Everybody Dance Now because it happened right around the same time the Millie Vanilli thing went down. And <laughs> right. after that happened, you had to then go and put your actual singers in the video. But there were some videos that had already been produced at that point, like that one. So they had, they had to put a ridiculous little disclaimer on the video, vocals by Martha Wash and portrayed by this other person, right, this was, model. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it actually worked out well for some people. Have you ever, you know, that group Snap who sang yes. The Power? Yes. The female vocalist on that is a wonderful woman named Penny Ford. And oh. she ended up getting a songwriting credit on those songs, partly because they needed her for the video all of a sudden. She was just wow. like a contractor for hire singing this song in Germany. And, but when this went down, they had to put her in the video. So she had a little leverage. So it wow. worked out fairly well in some cases. I didn't know that story, but yes, I think authenticity. I mean, I think people are starving for authenticity. And if, and if each of us can bring our, our, our best game in terms of, of being real, that's what there's a hunger for, mm -hmm. if you ask me, but I am old school that way. <laughs> I'm not about the bling. I'm sorry. <laughs> now a singer who did become a legit superstar with one of your songs is Taylor Dane with Don't Rush Me. Can you talk about that song, please? Um, um, I met her producer and uh, who was searching out songs because he, he wanted to sign her, a guy named Rick Wake. And I met him when he was 19 years old and he, he was collecting songs for artists he was working with. And she was one of the artists he, he, he basically discovered. And when he found the song, Tell It To My Heart, um, he brought it to RCA and they gave her a single deal, but it did so well that all of a sudden they had six weeks to make an entire album. And because he had kept, you know, this little stockpile of songs that he liked, uh, Don't Rush Me got included on that album. And basically it was our demo. The only thing that changed pretty much, she sang the demo, uh, Taylor sang the demo. Um, and, and then when it, they bumped it up to an album, they changed it from a keyboard solo to a guitar solo. But other than that, it was pretty much our track. Um, I don't know if I can dig up that demo anywhere, but I, I loved it. And, and um, so that was an incredible uh, boost for, for myself and Jeff Franzel, who I co-wrote the song with. And, and uh, I think it was his first cut. <laughs> so then when it did, so, it got on three different charts, adult, uh, contemporary pop and dance. And uh, so it was, you know, at that time, they called it a crossover hit. Mm. And, um, you know, it was in many different countries and the album ended up selling like 4 million copies. And, you know, those were the days <laughs> when you can make a living on this. And uh, yeah, it went to number two pop. So that was, that was really exciting. And and also it was meaningful for me because I know you had asked about um, putting meaning into lyrics. And for me that I had lost at that point, seven people I knew to AIDS and, oh, wow. uh, and it was very real for a lot of us. And I was talking about it with a friend of mine, Tom Finn, who was a DJ at Palladium 
and had also amazingly been the bass player in the band um, uh, that did Walk Away Renee, uh, Walk Away Renee, the uh, left the bank. Left bank, yeah. Yep, and and he was the bass player, but now he was a DJ at this uh, great club, the Palladium. And so um, what happened was uh, he, I, I was talking to him about there should be a song. Oh, no, he said to me, there should be a song about not going too fast in relationships. And I was like, that is a great idea. And I came up with this concept of, of don't rush me. And so for me, it was a song about becoming, you know, people having one night stands and becoming sexual with others without necessarily <laughs> being that careful. And and so the idea of don't rush me was also about that era that was very um, painful. I mean, I'm older than you, so <laughs> you might not remember when people were dying right and left of AIDS, but I did know, you know, several friends who had died and eventually did, you know, later on die. I do remember that. And it's probably hard for anybody who didn't live through that era to imagine today, but there was a stigma about it. Oh. Like, it, oh, yes. like it, people didn't want to talk about it. And I imagine if you were going to write a song about it, you had to do what you did, which is couch it in a lyric that it was more subtle, that you would only really know if you were knew that interpretation. I can't imagine you could have written a song that used the word AIDS or was no. uh, even had gay overtones at that point. All right. No, things have, you know, I think things have opened up and I think that lyrics have gotten more bold. I think they have to because you know, the moon, June spoon era is, is past. And I, and I'm one who was so much influenced by songs that were more political, but said it in a way that was palatable and not, not hitting it over the head with a frying pan with the, with the politics, but, but some of them did, you know, certainly um, a song like, uh, you know, four dead in Ohio or, or mm. about Kent state or, or, um, um, Southern man about about the racism of of you know of the the South and and uh, I mean a lot of songs that I grew up listening to were political but they were also super catchy and and still are around to this day and the messages you know the Beatles whatever uh, talking about um, you know the USSR for example or or uh, you know, I mean, any of their political stuff, give peace a chance and and like that, uh, imagine, you know, those kind of songs for me were hugely impactful. Yeah, those are all like pop song, folk songs. Some people have a lot of depth when they write for dance songs, though. Are, are there any like dance songs, songs you hear in the club that kind of strike you as songs that also have a meaning that gets in your head as well? Sure, sure. I mean, um, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, for example, one that 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 I thought was was bold was in that direction was uh, Papa Don't Preach. Remember when, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Madonna came out with Papa Don't Preach and it was about someone, you know, a pregnancy and a, a, an out of wedlock pregnancy. I thought that was a pretty um, bold statement. And uh, you had mentioned um uh, Pet Shop Boys, and I went back and listened to West End Girls, which I hadn't realized was so gritty. I, mean, mm -hmm. I was dancing in the clubs to that all the time, but I hadn't really uh, absorbed the lyrics and until I until I saw it. Um, 
on the page. And I was like, wow, that's what that was about. And, and, you know, yeah. violence in the streets and, and uh, gunplay and, and like that. I thought those, those were ones. Now you had mentioned earth, wind and fire, which, which one were you thinking of? I think I was thinking of shining star in particular, oh. uh-huh. where it, it's very much about a transcendence when you're opening your mind that kind sure. of thing. I that's love earth, wind and fire. Yeah. And they have uh, they brought in a guest lyricist who I had the pleasure of speaking with a woman named Allie Willis. Oh, she's one of my heroes. Oh, Allie Willis. fantastic. One of my heroes. So she Allie wrote September, you know, for them, September. Uh, so, and she wrote uh, Boogie Wonderland, which if you don't think about, you don't realize is really about loneliness. It's about this woman who goes to the dance clubs to escape this crushing isolation that she feels. But set to that groove, it's incredible. But September, we talked about that. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting. There's this balance between writing a lyric that is insightful and just letting the groove have its way. And Allie pointed that out when they do the Badaya in September. I asked her, like, what are what are they singing there? She said, they're singing Badaya. And she said, it drove me crazy that they did that. But Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire insisted on it because you can't let the lyric get in the way of the groove. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And another one that I lately, more recently, that I love that is that is, I think, uh, meaningful is is chandelier about someone getting so smashed and mm. and uh, you know abusing uh, alcohol in that case and um, taking shots and getting so getting so bombed and and uh, you know to me that's that's an amazing song musically and lyrically I think that it's really really well written and I've danced to it myself <laughs> and and I think it. it it's 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 like we are pushing boundaries if we're if we're doing our job and taking a stand, taking a strong point of view. It's crazy that these days many of the hit songs are in Spanish and they're hit songs playing on English radio stations. You'll hear like Bad Bunny and Rosalia and you won't even know what the song means or anything about it. Yet they're still popular hit songs. Right. And then uh, um, what was the one that had both, you know, uh, the Justin Bieber one? I mean, uh, oh, Despacito. Despacito. I yeah, love that it. was what a great song. And it and it's sort of swinging back and forth. And and I think that's great. And and it's actually made, I took French and I really wish I took Spanish. It would be so much more helpful in this. world. Yeah. As a songwriter, I imagine uh, Spanish would be uh, more useful than French. At this point, you don't at get a lot point. of songs that, that that have French lyrics that are very popular. True. In, in musical history, I think that would be a much more useful tool. <laughs> so let's talk about just structure of a dance sure. song. And particularly, you have written with Niall Rogers. Now, I know you weren't in the same room with him. This was all remote songwriting. But still, you've done these songs with Niall, including a great one called I Dance My Dance. Talk about 
that song and what Niall does to these songs that makes them so incredible. Well, well, thank you for noticing that one. <laughs> um, that one started out with uh, three of us, Melissa Sanley and Jerry Barnes and myself. And um, we had the concept, we had the title, uh, we had this idea of it being about individuality and freedom, you know, the freedom to sort of express yourself completely yourself and and not let other people's judgments get in the way. And, and this idea also of, of uh, kind of walking down the street and and doing your own thing and be and and being an individual and a bit of a fearless vibe of it. And um, in that case, Jerry is has for 20 plus years played the uh, bass in Chic with Nile Rodgers. And oh. so he tours with them, you know, all the time. I mean, obviously, COVID got in the way of that, but but they're back on tour. They're opening, I believe, for Duran Duran right now. And uh, so they're on these huge stages all the time for tens of thousands of people. So anyway, um, he played those two songs, that one in Law of Attraction for Niall and he liked them and we were over the moon and, and then Niall took them and made them his and added lyrics. And I believe on uh, I Dance My Dance, he added the entire bridge. Hmm. <laughs> and I think we didn't have a bridge. I think the song was a bit still unformed. And, and um, in terms of uh, the other song, Law of Attraction, he added a lot of lyrics, uh, rewrote the whole verse and, and also worked on the bridge and and uh, so he, and also bringing that guitar sound which is his signature incredible guitar sound uh, but he's also a really i mean a lot of people know his songs but they don't realize they they know his his songs you know like one of my favorites super favorites that he wrote is we are family um oh, sister yeah. sledge what a great song and also another song that has a lot of meaning i mean it's that idea of unity and and uh, collective uh, love is is for me something that's we you know, what the world needs now. <laughs> really, are you a baseball fan? Uh I went to some Yankee games with my brothers in in my day. All right. Well, this is just something that demonstrates the power of that song. The Pittsburgh Pirates were in the World Series one year. It must have been in the early 80s. And they're playing the Baltimore Orioles. And they're down three games to one in a seven-game series. And they had We Are Family as their theme song. And on the dugout where it would say Orioles for the Orioles, they put The Family. And that was what rallied them. And they, in fact, came back from the three games to one deficit the whole time rallying around this song that Niall Rogers wrote, the We Are Family song. And I remember being young at the time and thinking that that really told you something about the power of music and how people can respond to something like that. Yes, yes. You know, there's so many songs that have had an impact. And I think the like I said, what I think the world needs now is that sense of connection and unity. And um, I was talking with my therapist <laughs> and I was saying, the world is falling apart. What can we each do to bring it together? And and what he said, I thought was very wise, which is music is one way to, to penetrate people's hearts so that 
things like politics and the divisiveness and all, all of these subjects that pull us apart, economics and race and, 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 you know, every diversity, the, you know, uh, all that's going on with these prejudices that we still have. Music is one of the things that can penetrate us on that deeper level and change the world for the better. And, and I'm all about that. I'm getting more political as I, as I go forward. And I, I think it's, it's essential that we each do our part to, to solve these, these problems that the world is confronting, the, the environment, I mean, everything. It's, it's essential. So how does that manifest itself in your songwriting, Alex? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> um, for example, one, I have lost many people over my life. I get a little choked up thinking about it to uh, drugs and alcohol. Mm. Um, some people I've known since I was very young and uh, um, my brother's best friend, for example, lost to drugs and alcohol and, and so painful to watch someone going down that path. And I had my own you know, struggles. I was a pothead for a long time and it didn't help. <laughs> it was fun, but it's something I've tried to write about. And I, I wrote a song recently that I, I might put out. I haven't put it out yet, but it's called I Was High at the Time. <laughs> and it's about all the stupid decisions I made because I was high at the time and all the choices that, that, uh, that, that went haywire because I was not in my right mind when I made them. And, and it tell, it's a, you know, it's a true story. It's a little close to the bone. That's why I'm afraid to put it out. But uh, I think that we each have to get close to the bone. Um, another thing that I've been really upset about is uh, what's going on politically now. And, and I have written many, a have written uh, many a song on the subject of, of, I guess what the Beatles would say, you know, come together right now <laughs> and and finding the common ground between people. And and I know I sound like a broken record, but <laughs> no, I don't think you sound like a broken record at all. I imagine it must be challenging because on one hand, you have your political views. But if you write a Neil Young type song where it is blatantly left or right, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, it's probably going to become more divisive in just uh, backfire. To the choir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your goal of what you're talking about, kind of bringing people together and affecting people would be defeated by that. So then how do you go about doing that? That's kind of interesting. It is kind of interesting. And, and I think that that's why certain songs have a lifespan of 50 years and other songs have a lifespan of 10 minutes. I think that, mm -hmm. There's a way to say it without saying it. Like when I, uh, I think an anti-war song for me would be um, uh, the Dylan one, um, "Knocking on Heaven's Door," uh, for example. To me, seems like a other day take this badge off of me, you know, feels like I'm mm. knocking on heaven's door. I mean, it seems to me like he's a, uh, in a war and dying and these are his last words. And, um, or uh, another song like uh, Folsom Prison Blues, uh, mm. you know, or it's, it's like, how do we find our own voice and our own contribution to make with the talents that we've been given that we're channeling? <laughs> I feel like we are channeling uh, songs are, are you a songwriter as well no not at all 
Come on. No, really. really. Uh, but it but sounds you have like... such a great appreciation. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a DJ by trade before I started Song Facts. So that oh, this okay. was my way into the music industry uh, All without, right. without having songwriting talent. But like what you're talking about, knocking on heaven's door, for instance, it, that's a very poetic way to get the point across, which sounds like what you have to do these days. You can't just start singing about how war is bad because that's just going to make somebody turn the radio off exactly if you listen to that dylan song over and over like so many people have and eventually it kind of clicks to you that what he's saying might be a metaphor for war i can see how that could change somebody's viewpoint and really bring somebody around yeah give um to uh, the metaphorical universe to me is so compelling because when you look at your favorite songs Marvin Gaye singing, you know, what's going on? I mean, he's mm. talking about um, people warring with each other and he, but he's saying it in a way that is so beautifully poetic and melodic and, and classic that you, you, you're being, your mind is being changed. Your heart is being moved without, without it being preachy. And that's, mm. that is a delicate balance. And I'm continually trying to learn from from people who have gone before uh, my or my peers, whatever, who can say it without saying it and say it, say it without a sledgehammer. Yeah, <laughs> with a feather, <laughs> not a sledgehammer. It's it's a puzzle. It is a puzzle. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. That cold case you're listening to nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. So let's go back to 1993, and a hit TV show was Blossom, starring not only Mayim Bialik, but <laughs> Joey Lawrence as her brother. And not a lot of people remember this, but Joey Lawrence had a hit song. It was called Nothing My Love Can't Fix. written by one Alex Forbes. So along with Eric Beal and uh and Joey himself. So Joey has a songwriting credit on it. Yes. Oh so, yes, no we did write that together. What happened was we um I flew out there for a I was set up with him by a very nice gentleman named Mark Freed who worked at Spirit Music Group and um he set me up to write with Joey. You had this TV show. Now I am not, I have not had a TV pretty much since I was 16. So I missed TV pretty much. I, I just, when I moved to New York city from, from school and then from college, I, I didn't never, I never got a TV. So I went 25 years without a TV. And so I didn't know anything about Joey or that TV show, but I got out there and he was 
you know, he and his family are, are very uh, showbiz oriented. And, and we sat in a room and we wrote several songs and we got that one. We thought that the verse was really good, but we could not get the chorus. We just kept trying different things like throwing spaghetti against the wall and just, and finally I had to fly home. So <laughs> I came home from LA and I thought my friend Eric Beal would be a great person to, um, to bring in because he had a, an out, out, out of perspective. He had another perspective. Mm -hmm. And so we completed the song together and, and, uh, everybody was happy with it. And so it came out and it, it went to number 19 pop, which was, which was great. I mean, I think it kind of was here and gone. If, if you blinked, you missed it, <laughs> but it was great while it lasted. And, um, yeah, Joey, I think he sold like 400,000 albums, not quite gold, but I think he did pretty well. Well, I am thinking about how you're, you have the challenge of writing this song for a teenage boy and what would the teenage boy think and coming up with this whole idea of uh, he's telling his girl that whatever problems she has, it's okay because my love can fix it. <laughs> uh -huh. Nothing my love can't fix for you, baby. <laughs> yep, that's right. Um, and he put this rap in, <laughs> which was mocked endlessly but it was uh it was it was the time the time was different well it was pretty much contractually obligated in songs like that to have a rap interlude like this was 1993 so they all but that one was different because the rap was at the end of the song so you kept That's waiting true. for it to come in in the bridge but it doesn't and then at the end joey like busts out like a minute of this rap which is uh, you know I, I yes it was mocked it's it's kind of funny i kind of like it i i, I don't fun. know you know it's like in a new jack swing style which maybe it comes back someday i don't know but <laughs> there, and, you know he did a video and he did it on the tv show of uh of blossom which was fun and and no, it was it was fun and it was actually after that song that i decided to make my own album I did two albums and uh, promptly derailed myself. <laughs> I mean, I think I sold uh, 2000 of each, maybe. Were you <laughs> was... on a label? No, no, these were self-released. They were, they were on, you know, nothing and nobody cared, but I, I got my creative uh, juices satisfied, but that was all it was really good for. <laughs> huh. So you as a songwriter, felt mm -hmm. that you wanted to be an artist in order to express yourself properly. It, yes. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it was about self-expression. And I think that a lot of us who operate behind the scenes, I mean, I am basically a behind the scenes person. Nobody, you know, people might've heard my songs, but they don't know what I look like or that I'm, you know, where I am or who I am or anything because I, my name is, in very tiny letters, if at all. So, um, but at the same time, sometimes you want to do the kind of songs that nobody may ever cut. <laughs> so that, that, that are just, like you said, more, more self-expression, more subjects that you're interested in or music that your particular tastes run to. And it's, it's very freeing and that's the beauty part. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I've kind of come full circle. So now I'm running writing with other artists for their projects, like someone like Jan, um, and they are the front person, but 
but it's it comes out of a conversation. It's not yeah. like when you pitch a song to an artist, it's more like you write it with the artist or with the producer and yeah. and that way your vision is infused into their uh, artistry. Huh. I had a somewhat similar conversation with Taylor Dane, of all people, oh. who uh, at, when I was asking her why she didn't write many songs, she did a little bit, but not very often. And her take on it was that her expression came from her singing and she was able to take a song that somebody like you wrote and make that her own and really make that an expression that she felt very comfortable with. Very much so. Yes, it, she can make a song her own. And then that's the beauty of a great singer. And it's also the beauty of writing with a great singer is that if you're like me, um, you know, my voice does certain stuff, but it doesn't do a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're writing with someone who has a, a, a established their own style and found their own voice as an artist, then my voice as a writer and their voice as an artist can come together and make something that neither of us could have ever done alone. Okay. So a little music discovery here. This is a song Alex wrote called Barcelona, and it's by a group you've never heard of. It's called Bro Faction, who are two brothers from Austria. And this song is very pop. Apparently it's blowing up all over Austria, but uh, it hasn't quite made its way to the U.S. yet. Perhaps it still will. I went to Barcelona, phone got stolen, ended up alone there, sitting in a bar surrounded by water. Alex, can you talk about this song a little bit? Sure. Yes. Um, I met um, the two brothers, um, um, Nico and Lauren, at a songwriting camp that I led over 10 years ago, I believe. And uh, they were young at the time, very young. Uh, and and But they were you could tell that they were burning with it, especially um, um, Nico, who's a bit older, and Lauren, who's young. So I think Lauren at the time was maybe 10. Mm. <laughs> But Nico was maybe 15. And we, Nico and I, and several of the other writers there, uh, wrote a song that, that the two of them did end up putting out. Um, and so that was years ago, maybe five years ago or something. Well, then they let me know that they were coming to New York. And, and we sat down and wrote three songs together. And I had had this experience of having a fling with someone who barely spoke any of the same language. He spoke Spanish, and I spoke. English. And as I said, I took French. <laughs> yeah. So, but we did seem to get a, a lot um, accomplished with very little language and um, in common. And, you know, I was on vacation in uh, Venezuela. That was a time when you could go to Venezuela. And, and it was like literally, you know, a flirtation and one night, whatever, rolling around on the beach. And that was the end of that. So, I had had this idea of writing a song uh, that had this this hook, like, how do you say, how do you say this? How do you say that? Because that's what you're kind of doing when you don't speak the same language. So I had that concept. Uh, and then 
And then I had also recently, I have a co-writer outside of Barcelona and I had been in Barcelona. So we started out with this, this idea of like, went to Barcelona, phone got stolen, ended up alone there sitting in a bar surrounded by water. And, uh, and that's the song came out of that. But I, I knew I wanted to get to the, how do you say, how do you say? Mm. To, I wanted to get that in there because that had been part of the original concept that had never been realized. And so, but they're really talented guys. They have great voices together. It's almost like the way the Bee Gees, they, 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 you can't tell one from the other vocally in some cases. And uh, they're really neat people. You didn't really drink a pina colada in Barcelona, did you? <laughs> I think it was, that might've been for the rhyme. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a terrible choice of drink if you're in Barcelona. I mean, come Barcelona. on. You gotta have sangria or something. Sangria. Oh, God, man, don't order a pina colada. <laughs> here, I got the guitar here. Let me try that one. Hold on one sec. Let me try it with sangria. <laughs> Went to Barcelona, phone got stolen, ended up alone there, sitting in a bar, surrounded by water, drinking sangria. <laughs> kind of works. Okay. I see how pina colada works better. I yeah. do get it. <laughs> it rhymes. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, but that song, I love right from those opening lines you're drawn in went to Barcelona like okay I, tell me more I want to know how this and it's like the, the devil went down to Georgia he was looking for a soul to steal okay then what happens first line I don't know more so not every song does this I after I started paying attention to this I started trying to pay attention to what these different hit songs do and some of them are very much like barcelona where it, the story is starting to flesh out right away a lot of them are more abstract and some are kind of in between uh -huh. talk about the importance of that first line in a song yeah i i you know being that i coach songwriting and being that i write a lot of songs i think that what you have to do, you have, people have so little attention span. I think that's probably always been true, but I think it's more true now so that you have to grab them and you have to bear some aspect of your soul within like literally the first 10 seconds. You have to grab people because they have at their fingertips the ability to move away from whatever you're, you know, um, playing for them and go to something that they like more. And, and so what can you lay on the line that is of value? And what is it that you're, I guess what I would call it is, a song is like a hologram and your big idea is infused into every little note and every little word. So do you see what I mean by like a hologram? Like the whole is contained in the smallest bit of a song. So especially if, if, if you don't want it to be all scattered, it is a unified whole. That means that what you're leading up to and what you start with are, are umbilically connected and they are all one piece. Therefore, I, I picked up someone, um, uh, I picked up a few songs like you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht, your hat mm. strategically dipped below one eye, your scarf, it was apricot. I mean, you immediately know that that's mm -hmm. your so vain, but also it, it, 
it establishes everything about what she's saying about the character. You don't even need, you know she's saying you're so vain because you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. I, to me, that is just a killer first line. Um, or, um, okay, the song Big Yellow Taxi, Joni Mitchell. The first line is, they paved paradise, put up a parking lot. Okay, right? That is an environmental message right there where you know you don't realize what you have until it's gone i mean that's the point of the song is that it happens with a man it happens with your environment it happens with the the birds and the bees that we're killing you know it's actually an environmentally uh, um, conscious song that's in such a delicious package that you don't realize you're being preached at <laughs> well that one also that's the chorus so you can start a song with the chorus and also have it tell a story. That's kind of unusual. Sure, sure. And in a way, it's like a yeah. You tell you start with the like um, late last night. Heard the screen door slam. Big yellow text took me my old man. Oh, actually, the the chorus would probably be don't it always hit the go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. They paid paradise. Yeah, it's sort of like the tag of the of the chorus, right? Yeah, and then the title is just a line in the lyric. Right, right. Huh. And another one I thought of that I often use as an example because it's genius is um, once upon a time you dressed so fine through the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? <laughs> I love that song. I worship the ground it, song, it walks on because he huh. uses um so many internal rhymes you know once upon a time dress so fine through the bums of dime in your prime didn't you and then people call and say beware doll you're bound to fall you thought they were all kidding you i mean it's just the genius way that it's put together uh it it, it establishes the character of this person that he's describing in 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 such a little nutshell <laughs> What's an internal rhyme as opposed to an external rhyme? Well, it's an, an internal rhyme as opposed to an end rhyme. So an end rhyme, actually, he uses end rhymes and internal rhymes right there. So time, fine, dime, prime, those are within the lines. And mm. didn't you then ends up rhyming, you know, one uh, dolly bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you is an end rhyme. So didn't you and kidding you are end rhymes. And the others were uh, the internal rhymes, which is within a line. Um, so let me think. What, what's another one? Um, uh, in term, in terms of an internal rhyme, it's like if you said, um, "Hey there, where are you going, baby?" So the there and the where are within the line. And and if you go and you, if you said, um, "I'm blue, I'm going to." there maybe so then you'd have the maybe as the end rhymes i was just thinking about you're so vain which you brought mm -hmm. up that song is fairly vague in the sense that we don't know what the guy looks like we know what he's wearing we can mm -hmm. kind of but we have to kind of picture him in our head he mm -hmm. could be six foot seven he could be five foot two like we don't know we just know he's got this presence about him. But other songs like Barcelona, we know where it takes place. Okay, we're in Barcelona. We're drinking mm -hmm. a peanut. We have specifics. And I'm thinking about that. Like one of my favorite opening lines is 
Steve walks warily down the street with his brim pulled way down low. Okay, we know the guy's name is Steve. Uh-huh, uh-huh. kind of So some songwriters will say you got to keep it as vague as possible so everybody can picture their own person, put their own self into it. Others will say, well, you want to really be descriptive, like you're when you're reading a good novel and right. telling you what. What are your thoughts on that? I was thinking of um, the songs with names in them, like Hey There, Delilah, or... Uh, Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. Right. Her name was Lola, or L-O-L-A, Lola. Yeah, it's another Lola. <laughs> There's another Lola. Um, yeah, or... Uh, uh, Suzanne takes me down to a place by mm-hmm. the river, Leonard Cohen. Um, uh, it's just, I think that songwriting gives us so much freedom to to try, you know, throw our spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And I don't think there are rules as much as there are, is it working or is it not? Is it is it hitting someone in the heart and in the mind and in the body. That's what I love about songs is that they're hitting all three simultaneously. So they they hit your heart emotionally, they hit your mind, they hit your, you know, eyes in some way, you know, your senses, they they, they and and also your um your intellect if they're if they're stimulating that way. I mean, I I I, I never understood certain songs by for example Steely Dan. I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but I love those songs. <laughs> That's half the time I'm completely mystified as to what they're what they're talking about, or uh, or or um, stop making sense. You know, like uh, um, the Talking Heads. Some of those lyrics, I I cannot parse them, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, Steely Dan. Uh, I can see how you're talking about, was it the heart, the mind, the body, I guess maybe the soul, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They do hit all of those things because musically it's impeccable and you just kind of want to wait to hear what it does next. I mean, is there going to be like an electric piano solo following this guitar solo? And then the lyrics, of course, are really dynamic and make you yes. wonder what's going on. Yeah, they're definitely on to something with that. Right. And I, I don't think I think I'm more literal than that. I, it, it's it's I wish I was more imagistic or or abstract. It's just not the way I usually write. Uh, but that's OK. We each have our own strengths and we bring something to the table. And that's why it's also good to mix it up with with people who are not ourselves. <laughs> I, mm. I love the process of collaborating. I also I'm enjoying the process of writing alone. It's it's it, it's like it's these days sometimes a song is written by eight people each of whom bring something to the you know to the table that the others don't have just getting back to the first line of a song thing uh sure. just for fun i pulled up like our database of beatles songs and just uh-huh. the first line in each song uh-huh. my goodness if Every Beatles song, just about every one of them and almost all of the hits have a first line that is memorable that you go, wow, that's a really interesting way. That's a good phrase. It's like even the song on a boat on a river. (laughs) Yeah. And well, that one is very metaphysical and okay, it's got all this kind of crazy. But even the the Paul McCartney songs that are much Mm -hmm. more straightforward Mm -hmm. in Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photograph. So here we are. Okay. Tell me more about Penny Lane. What's going to happen next? Uh, One of my favorite songs of all time. 
wow, what a great, I, I, that surprised me when I actually looked at the first lines of all That's those That's a songs. great idea. Shoot. What a great lesson that is. <laughs> did you go to Stanford? I did. <laughs> How did that work out for you? <laughs> That's funny you should ask. Um, when I was in, uh, what, what is it, 12th grade when you apply to college, right? Yeah, when grade. you're a senior. Yeah, okay, right. Um, I saw a slideshow about Stanford and it had uh, palm trees. And at the time I was living in a very cold gray environment. And I looked at those palm trees and I was like, I want to go there. <laughs> and so I got into five schools and I went to the one with the palm trees. Well, it took me a little bit to figure out that, that my strengths were not necessarily those of the school. I was much more, um, artsy fartsy, uh, I wanted to do singing and songwriting and playing guitar and art. And, and so I ended up as an English major, which was a, a creative writing major, which actually has served me really well. And I, I have no complaints about it. It's a beautiful place. But I, I also took some, some, some really amazing other types of classes, um, you know, oceanography and Shakespeare. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, certain classes stuck out. I took some engineering and, but in the end, I might've been better off at, at a school that had more creative um, leanings. And I think it does now. I think they have, they have supplemented those, those weak spots that I discovered. Did you graduate? Yeah. What was your degree in? Creative writing, English. All right. Uh, it's helpful. Yes. So you didn't get in based on your artistic merits. You got in because you were smart. I actually did. I sent them some of my original artwork. I wish I could get it back. Huh. Um, but I sent, I, at the time I was very, I, as I said, I was, I ended up, I wanted to be a painter originally and uh, huh. draw, I was good at painting and drawing. And I thought that that's what I would pursue. Um, but then music is much more fun and much more interactive well there must be something in the brain that connects with both painting and with songwriting because some of the best songwriters are also outstanding painters uh joni mitchell of course and john right. mellencamp john is another Lennon? one who john mellencamp oh i didn't know that he oh did outstanding that. artist great painter oh my gosh i didn't know that and and, the, and the, didn't the rolling stones meet at art school and the, and yeah. also also uh, david byrne he was an artist mm -hmm. i mean a lot of a lot of people you know did both I mean, same with medical. I mean, some people were doctors and poets at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. The talking heads met at the Rhode Island School of Design. Really? Right. Well, right. There you go. So this is the last thing I have for you, Alex. Uh, I'd like to hear how you do a song critique like you do at Creative Songwriter. Okay, good. Um, well, the way that works, and I've led a lot of workshops, I guess. I've been uh, teaching songwriting since 1990. When, when somebody asked me, you know, I had just had um, some hits and they said, can you lead a class? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, so that was a long time ago. And, and uh, the way the one-on-one -on -one creative songwriter works is that people send me three songs and then I give them super extra detailed feedback on those songs, both lyrics and music. And and what I do is I put the lyrics down one side of the page and I put my feedback down the other side. And it's usually about six pages for three songs. So it's wow. very deep. And, and, you know, my, my uh, 
mantra is like first do no harm. So it's it's not I'm not you know ripping people to shreds. It's trying it's working specifically to be constructive and and actionable. So that mm. so that if one line is is not working, that's you can go in with a scalpel. I'm not going to say like hey don't quit your day job. You know, <laughs> it's more like I think that everyone's art deserves to be honored, and therefore that's my my purpose is to find the diamonds you know and 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 shine a spotlight on those and then see how they can get the rest of the song up to that level or you know there are cases where i go i don't know if this song has as much if when you have 3 you can really see the patterns and i say i don't know if this third song here has as much going for it as these other two and in fact i wouldn't take i would maybe rewrite that concept a different way and take the other two and and reshape them specifically. Boy, I've been in plenty of these radio station meetings where they get the stack of songs and they start playing them trying to figure out what to what to play on the air and I don't know if I ever heard anybody say something useful in one of those. <laughs> they always it cuz it always turns into oh that sounds like this. This sounds oh. like Melissa Etheridge or uh, a little too up tempo. Maybe that should it just dumb stuff like that. Uh, I see. I've never actually heard somebody that could take a song, listen to it, and explain in detail how to make it better. But I guess that's what you do for a living. And I guess that's where all your years of experience come into play. Well, and also, I mean, I make it clear on the first page of, 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 the, of the feedback is that it's always the artist's a prerogative what they want to do with their art and mm. and their the artist is always right in this case um the question is my ears are attuned to i guess what you'd call um mass appeal <laughs> or mainstreaming mm -hmm. and and some people don't want that they want to be more uh outside the mainstream they want to play their own game and that's fine i i i have no problem i mean as an artist i don't always want people telling me what what works and what doesn't work. I might want to find out. Like if you do a gig, which I, I've been doing some gigs at the bitter end, which is just like like a home base for me. I've been yeah. doing gigs there since 1985. Wow. <laughs> or 84 was the first time I played there. So that was a long time ago. Um, but when you play a gig and you do eight songs, there are going to be songs that people go, oh my God, that one made me cry. Oh my God, I can't get that one out of my head. That one, that one is special. And then there's a few songs that nobody mentions ever again. And you're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to pull that one out of the set because nobody even noticed that I played it. And that's like your spaghetti against the wall thing. It's like what sticks and what doesn't stick. And that's kind of what I'm trying to save people that, that trouble of having to have an entire gig. <laughs> yeah, I, I can give them that fast feedback. Yeah, I imagine if you're coming to creative songwriter, you want to get your song more for mass appeal because otherwise all you're doing is just if it's only for yourself who cares who hears it but right. if you want people to hear your song enjoy your song absorb the message then you would want you to somebody like you to critique it right well exactly and and i think that some people want that and some people don't and <laughs> that's just that's how that's how the world works it's 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 a question of if they want feedback and they're open, and you know, there's a lot of organizations all over the country that that provide this. I mean, I bring my own spin to it, but I think that if songwriters don't have a 
what what I've heard called a, a structure for support. It's like, mm. if you're going to quit drinking, you need to go to AA. If you're going to be a professional songwriter, you need to have mentors. You need to have relationships. You need to have, you know, maybe colleagues and collaborators who will, will give you the truth. The same with radio. I mean, if people's are bringing people are bringing their songs to a radio station and they're not getting on there's something wrong with this picture yeah <laughs> the radio station has a a need for people to come back hmm. alex thank you so much for appearing on the song facts podcast today it was a real pleasure having you my my pleasure i'm really glad i was able to do it the Song Facts podcast is produced by Corey O'Flanagan. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Network. My name is Carl Weiser, guest hosting for Corey today. As always, for the stories behind the songs, please go to songfacts.com. And for Alex, you can go to creativesongwriter.com. Get your song facts right here.